Hello and welcome to the 20th anniversary show of Fish on Friday. It's six o'clock and this really is Scotland. <laughs> A happy ending of time to win it all. Mm. Beer in the sun, perfect. It's kind of strange because my PC, my screen's turned in a gigantic mirror. David Hosson, good evening. Eric Kurt, good evening. Paul Malloy, hello mate. Happy Friday from Canada. Tony Horvath, Surrey, Samantha Little, hello from Maidenhead. Dave Richardson, hello. Hope you're doing well, Dave. Hope things are all good down in the other way, mate. George Connor, even sir, I'm very well, thank you. Les Simpson, Fit Lakeman. Yes, 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 yes. Love the Harrington gig with Steve Wilson and John Wesley. Stephen Wilson's uh, part of the, the thing tonight. Um, we got visitor here today. Um, this is, uh, this, uh, this is my daughter, Tara. Suitably socially distanced. Yeah, so she's, um, Tara's then visiting us to stay the night in the cabin. So it's, um, oh, it's really weird when you kind of, you know, see your loved ones and stuff and like, you know, when you can't kind of touch them and stuff. We've actually not given each other a hug since March, which is kind of really strange. Uh, so... George Connor, evening, sir. Lee Simpson. Got you. I've done you ready. I'm going to Adam Baker. Happy 20th. Monique Bilderge. Raining. Vorma. It's been just a weird week. It's been a really, really strange week. Um, it's like... This morning, it was absolutely drich. And it was, it was raining when, before we got up. Then we had the clouds. And then round about got 12 o'clock, the sun breaks through. And it's been absolutely sweltering. A couple of days ago, we had lightning and thunder, which was fantastic. It's like, you know, Simone and I, thunder buddies on the couch, just listening to thunder, watching the lightning crash over the, the thunder crash and lightning over the lammer mules was just brilliant. And uh, But the winds have been changing northeast, southwest, da, da, da. it's been absolutely nuts. Tomatoes in the greenhouse are absolute rubbish, and it's like, and everything's just been needing sun. And uh, it's all been a bit crazy, but... Uh, but I'm here after a very stressful week. When I mentioned whack-a-mole on the um, on the post, it's like it's not actually moles. We we don't have we don't have moles in the garden. Um, the whack-a-mole was in reference to like, loads of little irritating problems that were coming up in all sorts of areas, and it was nothing major. But it was just trying to deal with them all, which was really time-consuming and energy-sapping and irritating, to be honest. And. Uh, on top of that, there's been a lot of interviews, a lot of big interviews uh, this week. So, you know, my interview schedule's kind of been building as we move kind of into the album. So uh, I've got this situation where, 
you know, I've, I've got to set the alarms because I'm, you know, I'm working and I'm going around the garden. I've got to get the alarm. Do, 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 do. The other day, it was, um, I had an interview phoned up. I completely forgot I had it. And he said, hi, I'm here to do an interview. <sighs> so I've got kind of just trying to get in the rhythm of interviews and, and getting through the next section. The, the, the vinyl had come back. We had to check the, uh, the test pressings for the Garden of Remembrance that was done. I had to listen to um, the entire Velchimans album on CD just to make sure there was no little tricks and trips in there. And there was, you know, because there's nothing worse than pressing the, the button and then going, oh, well, I'll listen to it now. And then you hear it, it you know, and it's that's panic mode. So, But we've been getting it all together and forging our way through this kind of whole preparation, this whole setup thing of the album. And as I said, it's so many things come at you from left field. It's, uh, it can be um, sometimes overwhelming. And, uh, but the other night when Simone and I sat down, we actually got a bottle of wine out and listened to the entire Velschmerz album. And then we thought, well, go and listen to some other stuff. And I played Feast of Consequences. And I hadn't played that, I hadn't listened to that for quite a while. So we listened to the whole of the Highwood and Great Unraveling and things. It was a, uh, it's unusual, I don't, I don't listen to my own music, but I, you know, I don't go through there and go, oh, I'm going to listen to myself tonight. But it's every now and again, you know, as with the Velschman's album, there's certain things you have to do. And then you just go, oh, well, let's put this on because it's remembering me things. And this week, or today, I put up the um, the kind of, the, the five song kind of like list for discussion. And um, the winner by an outstanding amount was uh, Plague of Ghosts, or um, as they said in France when they heard it first, it was a, a Plague of Goats. A Plague of Goats. <laughs> I have the beard grown suitably for the Plague of Goats track you're going to be playing. A lot of you might not know this, it's been interesting to see uh, comments and things, you know, and, you know, Males that we've had coming in, people that, that have never heard some of these songs, like after Perception of Johnny Punter, we had a, we had a, a little surge on the, the Sunsets on Empire uh, remaster. And um, I thought I'd, I'd do this this one. And unlike Perception, when the last last week I did it, it was uh, or a couple of weeks ago when I did Perception, I didn't listen to the track before, like in Credo last week, you know, I didn't listen to it. And I thought, with Plague, you know, I better listen to this before so I, I kind of know. I just jog my memory before I, I come on air and things. And um, I always, I forgot how good some of the parts of that song were. But anyway, I'll just go address some people. Phil Wood, Paul Bernard, greetings from Belgium. John Germanatora, Phil Collins is back again. Hi, Phil, how you doing? Got it too soon? Yeah, you're lucky. I heard, um, the other day, it was, they were on about, I don't know whether the, the figures I was told by somebody. And um, they've seen it Live Nation, who owns so many venues and involved in management and all sorts of stuff. Fingers are every pie, promoters, everything. I mean, it's, it's the biggest kind of live music operation in the world, I think. And, uh, and it was saying that uh, their income went from 3.4 billion to 74 million dollars, I think it was. It was a 98% drop, and it's kind of thrown, it's, a, it's an entire lorry load of spanners uh, kind of getting thrown into the, the whole idea of the live music industry, because uh, because Live Nation are so involved with so many, 
they've got so many fingers and so many pies. It's like um, those pies could be disintegrating and it's going to be very interesting to see how it moves forward because there's going to be venues, promoters, etc. that are going to find it very, very difficult to kind of recover from, you know, that kind of hit. And uh, it makes me wonder, you know, when you've got <coughs> Live Nation so involved in so many venues, you know, how it's going to affect, like the O2s and things like that, which, you know, I've got gigs in um, Live Nation-owned venues, and, and there are some of the promoters that we, we deal with, you know, especially in Holland. Uh, a lot of them are kind of, you know, tied up in that big Live Nation huge enveloping corporate shadow and, uh, but I mean that's a big hit it's a big big hit and um, well now you know, there's rumours saying that nothing's going to happen till June July and uh, we just keep on waiting just keep on waiting but like I said I mean you know when you look at those kind of figures I mean that is serious serious money but I won't go into the Live Nation thing as I have my own views on this and it would take too long and because I'm playing a very long track from the oldie catalogue um, my old solo catalogue it's better to concentrate on that yes 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 Wojciech Greg Giersny from Grimsby Danny Denitzas from Brazil Nuro Santos hello hello it's like I said I've got a mirror because it's so sunny here today walk around Russ this is the garden there's the suitably distanced daughter, reading a book. And this is kind of where it's at at the moment. One of my two roses of Damascus that I gave, gave my wife. And this is my pride and joy, it's the, the fernery with the wall that was built last year. And on the top, we've got these sunflowers that um, the birds have deposited that are growing and they've become well, little totems. But that, the view across the Lammermuirs, and that was getting blitzed by lightning the other day. This is the other half of the fernery. Always wanted a fernery, so I always, always found the old Victorian ferneries. There used to be one down in, in Dalkey's Palace, and uh, it was a spectacular place. And that's the cabin people that are visiting here, if anybody comes here, any family or anything, that's where they stay. That's where Steve was staying during the, the, the writing of Elchmelt. So when he got into kind of November time when he had to move out the tent. And it's our little palmico cabin. It's a brilliant little thing. But in, the, in, in this thing, you know, when, like I said, when Tara visits, it's like she can stay out there and she's not in the house and she keeps a social distance and everybody's kind of safe and... And with the sun out, that's my kale, cabbages. You can see on the side of the cabin that there's uh, the onions are all drying. And I've still got a load of garlic in that third bed. And another big sunflower, red cabbage. I'm getting prepared. It means that it's um, getting on my winter veg and stuff. I mean, the prepper in me comes out once again. So if the second wave comes in, we're going to be living on a diet of cabbage and dried chickpeas. The house shall float. But the rain, etc., was, uh, the thunder and lightning, 
I think you kind of got me thinking about the plague of ghosts. Um, you know, because there's so many mentions of water, etc. And obviously rain. I've got to get into the flow today. I'm out of the rhythm. Darren Handley from Liverpool. Chili, chili, Javier Morales, Steckel. Yeah, the T-shirt. If you turn this, your screen towards the mirror, it says Chile, and there is a small penguin. And I got this on my very first ever visit to Chile, and it's one of my favourite T-shirts. I love it. A little penguin on it. Love Chile, and I want to get back there. God knows when, God knows how, but I want to get back to Chile. I had great times, great gigs there. Yeah, the Skoda. It's the Skoda. Yeah, I was uh, trying to operate the, the voice-activated kind of phone thing in the car. Drives me mental. It's like, you know, it didn't phone up Rick Parfit this week. It phoned up five different other people when I was trying to phone home. And it's just... Oh, I don't want to go there. But seemingly like it's going in for an oil change, so maybe they could discover why it's doing only 33 miles of a gallon. And now... Nick Stubbs, great view it is. It's a brilliant view. This is why we're, we're lucky here. We're in we're in a farm in East Lothian, and there's only about eight families, eight houses, kind of around us. So it's a lovely little hamlet, and it's um, it's just absolutely detached. It seems or it feels from the rest of the world, and uh, it's a little sanctuary and a little paradise. And I've been here since 1989, and as I said, the studio's here since 91. And back in 98, we were starting on the Rain Gods album. And uh, it was a pretty bad time. You know, domestically, it was kind of a, a fractious time. And financially, it was an incredibly fractious time. Um, I'd come off the Sunsets album and basically everything I'd kind of made off the Sunsets album was just sucked up by interest payments at the bank and... You know, I said before we'd run out of promo and I was facing Rain Gods and I got half of the, the, the Rain Gods album from the Chateau Marowat sessions, which I'll, I'll deal with another time because I want to concentrate and play. Rain Gods with Zippos, it was, I remember when I came up with a, the idea, it was, um, I, I woke up in my, my bed one morning when I was in the old house and uh, it just had this Rain Gods with Zippos and it was, I kind of saw it as, kind of, why does a rain god need a zippo? It was, you know, that kind of big question. But the original, the original album cover had the idea, and I think this was kind of behind it, was basically a soldier in a big camouflaged um, rain kill with a, the hat on, with a symbol on it, you know, with a peace symbol. And it was basically a zippo and torch and hoochies, like burning down houses. And we didn't follow that up, and we ended up with a sleeve with the umbrella and everything. It was the, the Rain God thing. It was, uh, with Plague of Ghosts, Rain, God, Rain Gods and the Plague of Ghosts was, um, an idea came up from Mark Daghorn and Tony Terrell. I'd never met them before and they approached me. I think they knew, Mark Daghorn, I think it had something to do with Stephen Wilson. And I was looking for the rest of the tracks for the Rain Gods of Zippo's album. And I'd been approached by Mark and Tony to do a kind of spoken word thing over this dance uh, track that they had that was about 18 minutes long, 19 minutes long. It was called All These Christ. 
This is the Rain Gods uh, Zippo's remaster, and it's actually got the original um, demo of all these Christ that uh, Tony and Mark brought up. And when I heard it, um, the first time they played me, I was thinking, hmm, this is a big long track. It's in the prog vein. There was a lot of stuff that I didn't like in it, and uh, but there was a lot of good basics. And I said, basically, rather than actually let's let's uh, let's do a voiceover and, and and I'll give it to you and to do your thing with it, I said, why don't I take it on board, and we'll fish eyes it, and uh, and they agreed. And Mark Dacon was supposed to be helping with production. Elliot Ness was um, uh, engineer at the time. Hello, Elliot, in Tel Aviv, or wherever you are, if you listen. Um, and Elliot Singerman. Elliot Ness, Elliot Singerman. And um, Elliot had been um, working with me here at the studio and, and doing various engineering bits. And we kind of done a lot of the sound work and, and a lot of the recording for the earlier parts of the um, material. But when we approached Plague, it became a whole different ball game. And we had to start cutting things up. And I'd read this book by, I think it was, his name was Douglas Copeland. And it was called Girlfriend in a Coma, or Girl in a Coma. And it was about this girl that went into a coma and woke up and everybody had disappeared. And I'd been recommended it from a Canadian friend of mine. And I was intrigued by the book and I thought it was, it was a kind of a good basis, like a good seed point. And um, all these cries morphing in the Plague of Ghosts suddenly became uh, a huge personal statement. As I said, it was like, at that time, financially, I was up against the wall with a blindfold on. And, um, you know, my first marriage was kind of going through really difficult times, and we were struggling to keep it together. A lot of it had to do with the finances and the fact that I was having to go on tour to try and keep everything running and keep everything together. And um, there was some pretty dark times around then and uh, when I started off on it I had no real idea kind of where the kind of storyline was going to go and it just naturally fell all together and um, very much like Weltschmerz I think there's a lot of similarities on, on Plague Ghosts to the, the some of the feel on, on, on Weltschmerz and it was a track that you know a series of tracks that kind of we struggled to kind of get a hold of in some parts and really get the, the vibe going. But it's a really emotional track and it's a set of tracks and as far as from the halfway point on, I just, um, from the halfway point on, it was just a whole beautiful movement. And some of the sections that Tony Terrell brought up were just brilliant. But in the studio, you know, about, a week, two weeks after we kind of started getting into the recording, um, Elliot and I both noticed that Mark Daghorn, who was supposed to be the producer, wasn't really producing. He was eating an awful lot of pizza and he was drinking a lot and taking part in a lot of um, uh, studio antics. But uh, he wasn't really contributing. And I started to realise that in that partnership, the one that was the really creative guy was Tony Terrell. And I'd wanted to kind of move into some 
some more modern kind of sounds and things. And I was attracted by drum and bass. I wasn't a huge fan of it, but I was attracted to it, just, just the vibe. And we decided to let, take a little leap into the unknown and, and I'll use a lot of the sequences and use a lot of the programming as, as, as the skeleton for the, the material. And um, we molded it. It was, it was a case of just molding and shaping the, the entire track as, 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 as it moved along. And I wanted to start off with, a, with that whole, that whole, um, that I'm, I'm alone in the darkness. And that was kind of how I was feeling. As I said, it was, um, you know, I was dealing with the bank, I was dealing with a, a lot of pressure back then. And it was, it was, it was a pretty shitty time, to be honest. I should really play this and talk about it after, maybe. Digging Deep in the Darkness was, uh, I regret that. And it's, I regret how we recorded it and that it, we were struggling to get it all together. And I think it became over heavy at one point. And we were trying to get that kind of real, you know, soulful vibe going. But a lot of it was, was just, you know, purely restricted. Stephen Wilson was, I'd asked Stephen Wilson to get involved. He was originally going to get involved with some of the writing for um, uh, the Rain Guns was Zippo's album, but he was tied up in his own his own projects, and um, he came up to kind of help Elliot and I out. And one thing I always remember, <laughs> I had this uh, I had this dog, and it was called um, Kerry, and Kerry wasn't doing that great, and I think my wife had gone away back to Germany at that point for a, a little while. And I was left in the studio, and it was one day I kind of got up with a dressing going on, and I came in, and <laughs> Stephen Wilson and Elliot were standing there in the control room, and uh, <laughs> they were pointing at the floor, and I was looking down, and there was this huge dog shit on the floor, and <laughs> they were just pointing at it, and there was I, used to be in a big band, you know, singer, commander of the project, you know, boss man, the whole bit cleaning up dog shit at the feet of Elliot Ness and Stephen Wilson. It was because Elliot had left the doors to the control room open at night and the dog had some, got in somehow and got trapped and uh, had emptied its bills on the control room floor. That's one of my fond fondest memories of, of, of that particular time recording. But yeah, but Stephen Wilson kind of got involved and started to add his old thing in, in the guitar. And uh, it was a really kind of powerful a very powerful kind of element within the whole song. But I mean, as it, as it moved along, it, it kind of, I took in a lot of experiences that I had when I was with my daughter uh, and my wife down in St. Lucia. And we'd been traveling about on, on this Caribbean island and there was some kind of really spooky places. And I remember seeing this really old graveyard that was all overgrown. It was like something out, like a James Bond film set, you know, where you've got the, you know, the, the, the zombie voodoo creatures coming, you know, shooting out the ground. And I was watching this and seeing the wildlife that was around at the time, and it was so primeval in a way. And it was as if, you know, mankind had kind of been, that was all that was left, was just these gravestones, and it had all been overgrown by nature. And I kind of pulled elements of that into it. And a lot of the spoken word stuff, you know, the, was, was really came from St. Lucia. And um. And it just, the song moved on. I think what I'm going to do is play the damn thing. Because it's like, it makes it an awful lot easier. We go indoors. This is where I fall over things because my shades are sunglassed up. This is a... Uh, I'm starting this week.
I'll try and take you, try and take you through some of it as we go on. Some of you never heard it. Like I said, it was a 20 minute song and this whole thing, this Copeland book, you know, the girl in a coma thing. It was about me. I kind of felt, I felt very isolated at that time. I felt very, I, I was feeling quite alone because of all the pressures that were coming in from all these different areas. And um, I was kind of questioning what I was doing. The, I needed to sign to a label and at around about that time, Roadrunner was the, the, the label that was interested in me. So this was the album that came out on Roadrunner and this was pre-Chocolate Frog Record Company. This was the last album that went out on another label and after this, the Chocolate Frog Record Company was formed. And Chocolate Frog was uh, part of the, the lyric, A Heed Foo of Chocolate Frogs. And A Heed Foo of Chocolate Frogs in Scottish Parliance is basically when you're feeling a bit, um, when you can't think, when you're going crazy. When, you know, it's madness or, you know, you've, you've lost the plot. And that was kind of how I felt. I mean, I definitely had a heat for chocolate frogs with dealing with this massive debt, which was in 1998, going up into the 750,000 marker, right? So, yes, 750,000 quid in debt. And um, I was really questioning myself and I was lost, to be honest. And at the same time, I was kind of very aware of my history, which is kind of what became the Plague of Ghosts. It was all friends and people that I knew and that had died, passed away. And it was kind of revisiting them. And that was kind of where a lot of this, these sections came in. The Waving at Trains, Waving at Stars uh, section, was inspired by a Roger McGough poem called uh, Waving at Trains, which is all about a guy in a train and, you know, he sees the, the, the bloke up on the, the hill in the field as he goes by and he's just waving, waving at trains. And he didn't know whether the person in the train was seeing him and he was just waving at trains. And I, that was kind of, had a lot to do with like being on the road. I think it came through that emptiness of uh, feeling that detachment, that, you know, being on the road, you know, waving at fans and stuff, you know. And I'm, I'm gibbering tonight, I'm gonna... Here we go. Gotta get it right. Ah, 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 ah. Da, da, da. Keep on. No, no. Ladies and gentlemen, this. It's a plague, of course.
Distorted corpses of unsolved murders and old revolutions. Pirouettes and dance amongst the swirls and eddies in the final procession down the muddy river to the delta. Where they're thrown up by the surf onto sterile beaches. Or are trapped in the roots of mangrove cathedrals of the islands that gather in the bay. These are the first arrivals on this new horizon that will be coveted by strangers who will deposit themselves on these shores to build towers to the heavens. The storm will come and the rains will fall and remove their dreams and hopes once again to the waters that surround them. And while they pray, the frogs will chant in the darkness.
with Zippo's album. Yeah, when I was... When I was listening back to that, it was kind of strange. And like I said, I listened to it before. And it was... Uh, Dave Stewart did some absolutely brilliant drums in that. And uh, he was really absolutely on form. And Stephen Wilson's guitar parts, just so tasty. It was... Uh, funny, when, you, when I hear the Digging Deep part, I always what what I wanted to do was get the, the voice to do the rhythm. So that what was actually meant to happen was that the voice was going to be the principal rhythm. Digging deep in the darkness, digging it deep down, 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 down to be the, and it became an absolute nightmare. And um, Liz Antley, the beautiful Liz Antley, uh, or Elizabeth Troy, um, she was the the singer and the the, the, the vocals that she did. And she came up here to, when we recorded it. She came up here because we'd written. In the song Incomplete at Marowat, that's where we met, was at the Chateau Marowat. And Liz came up to put the, the Incomplete song together. But she did all the the BVs and of right across that whole track. And we also did that Digging Deep, and the whole thing was supposed to be this interplay. And I always remember live, it was an absolute nightmare. Because we could never get it right. It was digging it deep, down, deep, down, 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 deep, 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 down, down, deep, deep, digging it, digging it, digging it, digging it. <laughs> could never get it right. It was a nightmare. And I, and I had to try and write it down with the album lyrics. <laughs> digging it deep down, down, deep down, deep down, digging it. And it was, uh, but like I said, it was supposed, all the percussion, the, the rhythm track was supposed to be all the vocal syllables. And we didn't just, we didn't quite pull it off, you know. Um, it, was, uh, it was a couple of other things. The water references in it, all the rain references in water. It was like, I was always having dreams about rain at the time. And it all had to do with the stress from you know, the, the situation that I was in. You know, as I said, I mean, you know, it, it was difficult. I, I was, I got very, con not confused, I got, I wasn't in tune earlier on, but just, I wasn't in, in the patch, right? Because it's difficult, you know, when I've got my daughter sitting out there, and at the time she was seven years old, and, uh, you know, and sitting talking about a, a song that was about a very, very difficult uh, period in my relationship with her mother and my, my first wife. And it was, um, the end part was basically, you know, can we hold it together? Can we, that was it, let's make it happen, you know? And that was what it was. It was kind of, the, the song starts off with myself kind of basically on my own and moving through and then it bringing in all these, this like lines like, you know, you know, look, you know, praying for, praying for time, praying for signs. And I was really, I was, I was really struggling by then. I was struggling with my mental capacity, my mental health. I was struggling with my relationship. I was struggling with the whole financial thing. And, you know, that song kind of encompassed, like, the entire kind of situation that I was in. You know, it had all these kind of elements, that kind of that voodoo nature element. But the water thing, the dreams at the time, I was always in a house and there was always water coming through the ceiling. There's probably some counsellor or a psychiatrist or psychologist watching Fishing Friday tonight going, yeah, I know what it is, mate, I know what you're on about. Mm, that's that. But it was but it was always like we, we bought a house and there was always water falling through it and coming in, rising on the floor. And that was kind of where a lot of that came into, into the lyrics. And, it, you know, as somebody pointed out on the feed earlier on, you know, it's, 
you know, because, as thank you, it was Douglas Copeland, it was Girlfriend in a Coma, and it was, yeah, um, you know, that thing about the em waking up in an absolutely empty city and wandering about and not seeing anybody, you know. And it was, you know, when you think back, at the, uh, wow, COVID and the lockdown, you know, when people were, were making these movies, like, you know, when you were seeing, for example, up here, you know, seeing Edinburgh and seeing Princess Street, completely empty. And uh, it was very eerie. And that whole thing about, you know, empty churches, empty pews, and in the subway, nothing moves. Yeah. And the static on the radio is drowning out the sound. Chocolate Frogs was definitely about my state of mind at, at that time. There was a lot of mentions of kind of, let's be honest, it was like, I hid for a period and uh, I didn't hide, but I was using things, substances, whatever, you know, to basically just take the pain away. It doesn't work, you know, it doesn't work at all. In a lot of cases, it just amplifies it after you come off it. And um, that was the whole chocolate frogs thing. But it was um, Francis Bouillon, Bouillon, otherwise known as Merlin, he did this beautiful high vocal piece on it. And... Um, He's, he's, he's a big French guy and he had this wonderful high voice and we we used that with you know in the round about the in the first section stuff but it's it's kind of bleak the horns I mean you know I want to when I hear this back I go I wish you know I mean listen to the Velschmerz album and I wish Callum Malcolm has got his hands on this I mean I'm so tempted you know I'm I'm so tempted to re-record it. But I think what I'm going to do is do a, a rewrite or a rearrangement. I know when I do the farewell tour, whenever the f that happens, right? But I, I want to play this track. But I, what I want to do is completely rearrange it and rescope it. And 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 I think it could be you know tidying up that digging deep section. The end sections are beautiful. I mean Tony Terrell, yeah, Tony Terrell's piano in this was beautiful, which is why you know we fired Mark Dankhorn after about you know a week or so, you know a week and a half. And it was like, you know, Tony, do you want to come in and do this? And uh, and Tony came in and, and that was when he became my keyboard player for quite a long period. He was a lovely guy. And he was brilliant in the studio. You know, he was, you know, he, from the All These Christ demo track that you could hear on the Ring Gods with Zimbo, Zippo's remaster. There was, uh, you know, we, we kind of knocked bits out and took chunks out. And, um, and Tony came up with those beautiful melodic sections the, the piano sections at the end of the track and it was it was inspiring for me it was inspiring but it was very much about my relationship at the time and the, the bleakness and, and that sense of isolation that you sometimes have within a relationship where you can't reach out and touch the other person and there's no contact and you know you feel detached from everything and um you know, when I, when I hear it back, I mean, I can remember my state of mind at, at the time. And, you know, like I said, the, the wave in the train section was uh, that fact that, you know, nobody, you know, you're waving and nobody can see you. And uh, and um, and as I said, you know, on the tour, the tours were starting to get to me at that time. I remember when we took this out, John Wesley came in on, on, on guitars and... Uh, it was such a, a huge, you know, bunch of lyrics to to deal with. Um, you know, I had to, I had to. That was the first time I started to use a, a lyric stand, and we came up with this idea of using the, the dais and 
you know, the, uh, bringing on the dais and having the lyrics on the dais were the candelabra. And that was, it was just so powerful having that, the, just the, the, little, the candelabra with the candles and just, you know, doing the, doing the spoken word section. It was, it was really moody. There's a great version, there's a, a live version from which we played in, what was it? The, the book, the book, go to the book. 2000, I'm sure it was 2000. Uh, da, 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 da. USA 2000, John Wesley guitars, Tony Terrell keyboards, Steve Vance's bass, Mark Prater, one of John, John Wesley's drummer came in to do that. Uh, and Elizabeth Troy came out with us. But, um, there was a, a great version. I remember we played in New York once and there was some people were very shocked. Um, we, we did this, this gig in New York. I can't remember exactly where it was off the top of my head. And um, we were, throughout the whole set, it was like, there was this very, very drunk guy that was very, very close to the front and audible down the microphone. He was, so, was kind of within about, you know, three, four meters of me. And, um, he kept on shouting out Fugazi all the way through the set, in the middle of songs and everything. It was really getting on our nerves. And um, and I was getting really wound up and it had been a tough tour for me because it was like, I'd basically landed in, in Florida at the, the, the start of the tour to go into rehearsals with Mark Prater and, you know, the guys. Because we were across, actually, we were across for John Wesley's wedding to Rebecca. Uh, his wife down in Florida at St. Petersburg. And we did this kind of busman's holiday. So the idea was, if we do the, t if, you know, everybody wanted to go to John's wedding, but it was a really expensive thing to go for everybody to fly out. So I said, well, why don't we do a tour? Well, let's do a really short American tour. And that way we can kind of like pay for the flights and everybody can get that. We can sort of tell, yeah, everybody was up for it. John was up for it. And he had like, a, it was like his, his, um, his uh, um, bachelor tour, you know, like, and, um, but we came into you know, the Ritz, that was where it was, it was the Ritz. And we were on stage in the Ritz, and my, my, my voice, when I'd landed in Florida, right at the start of the tour, I lost my voice. I got viral laryngitis, that, that horrible nemesis of a, a, a shitty thing. And I, I basically walked off the plane and into the hotel and lost my voice. It was like I'd left my voice in, in, on the plane. And I was really struggling on, on, the, on the first part of the tour, and we, I had to do the gigs. And I was like panicking and, you know, we were having we had, we had a, a couple of dodgy nights. But when we got to New York, it was kind of coming back. I kind of managed to nurse it and rest it and, and get it back. So I'm on stage at the Ritz. They're in there, middle game, Fugazi. Right in the middle of the songs. Again, I'm getting so wound up. And we're coming up to Plague Ghosts, right? And it was, uh, it was... I'm going, this is going to be a nightmare because you've got all these wonderful atmospheric sections and you needed the, you needed the, you needed to hold the audience. And the Ritz was kind of, we had a balcony around it. It was a lovely balcony. It was, just, it was a packed out gig. And, you know, you, you just wanted the atmosphere. We had the candelabra, we had the dais. We were going to go in, you know, these lovely sections. Fugazi. Right? And I'd asked the guy to shut up. And I'd, I'd, I'd tried to take the piss out of him. He was, he was basically, he was a loud, very loud junk. And asked him, you know, please stop. You're screwing up this gig. And the people are applauding and going like, you know, will you shut up, mate? Will you shut up? Nobody was doing anything. And security weren't doing anything either. 
And I said, well, you know, this happens, man. You know, like, you know, it's just a drunk guy shouting out. But, you know, I'm in Ritz in New York. This is the first time we've been in, in New York for a while. It's the last time we're going to be there for a long time. And as I said, I mean, I took the piss out of him. I humiliated the guy. Everybody's laughing. Everybody doesn't like this guy. He's the only, and he's, and I'm going, he's going to ruin this entire experience for everybody, right? And it was, I think it was somewhere, it was, it was one of the solos at the, at the beginning of the play game, just before we were coming into it. And I said to, I said to John, I said, John, just keep the guitar solo going, right? And, he, and he's looking at me and I said, just lengthen it, just lengthen the whole thing, right? And I went off stage and I went down the side of the, off the side of the stage, right? I went off the side of the stage and it, it was like the stage was there. So I went down off there, it was stage left. Then there was a door, I went down there, and then I went through a little door past two security guards that are standing there looking at each other like, you know, the the the, the kind of the guards and uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Like, what, 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 guard the what, guard the what, right? And they looked at me, and uh, there was two big black guys. Went through the door, right? And I went out and I crouched down, and I was crouching in this venue, and I went through it. And people were pointing them, they knew exactly what I was there for. And they're going, he's over there, over there. So I'm following, like going down through the crowd. John's like playing guitar on the stage. And I had this guy, and I saw him, right? And the people are pointing at him, right? So I knew exactly who it was. And obviously I'd seen him from the stage, so I knew what he looked like. And I went, you know, down the back of him like that. And then I, I, just, it was, I, I just put my hand up and grabbed his collar. And it was like, woof. Pulled the guy off, dragged him. The, the floor was sodden in beer. And I just pulled him by the back collar, right? And I pulled him into the, 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 the through the door into the, towards the dressing room, through the door with the two big security guys. God, the what, what curtains, right? And, I, and I'd got a, and I went down. And it was like, don't you ever. I said, get the out of this gig and don't ever come back. And it was like, it was, I said, get rid of him now, right? And it was a, uh, and then I went back on stage and everybody applauded. The crowd's going great, you know, I'm like, yeah. And we went in and we did a really beautiful version of, um, uh, uh, Plaguey Ghosts that night, it was great. And all the band are going, and John's going, good then. <laughs> and it was like, and we got it, but the crowd loved it. And then I got, I got mails, right, from people. I was, I was really upset, guys. I was staying there with a gig with my girlfriend, and then suddenly this man was attacked in the crowd by the singer. And we think, we want him, my girlfriend wants an apology. <laughs> <laughs> And he was like, and he went on. I got, I was like, you know, it was totally outrageous what you did back then, you know. And I'm going, nah, deserved it. And it was, uh, but yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. And I remember on that tour as well, it was, <laughs> there was another guy, I think it was in Washington. Um, we did this gig in Washington, D.C. Uh, the club, can't remember, it'll come up, I'm sure. And um, it was at the Bayou Club. And, uh, and we were playing the gig. There was a guy reading a book, right? And he's up on the balcony reading a book, right? And it was like, excuse me, mate. And it's like that. I said, would you mind putting your book down? We're doing a gig here, right? She's just off. Oh. <laughs> Read on the balcony reading a book well, in the middle of a gig, right? And it was, uh, but yeah, but I mean, but Plaguey Ghosts, I would love to, to, to re-record. Like I said, on the, on the Farewell Tour, it's definitely in there. Right, I'd love to do an orchestra. I mean, imagine that one orchestra. I mean, imagine that with Callum Malcolm's work that he's done on Velschmelz on, on on those tracks and, and throwing that in. So, 
you know you never know it's like if we do it we, we might even get a, a re-recording there but it was a really strong song and i thought it would become you know a real one of those kind of a, a real prog classic and it, it, it nearly got there it nearly got there but it's kind of that the, from the halfway mark on the, the digging deep section kind of it still irritates me a little bit. I love the, the, the rhythms, but it just it disjoints there. And there's a couple of um, butt-end moments where we, we, we could, musically, we couldn't find a sweet way through it, so we had to kind of do fade up, right? But it's, it's a powerful song, and as I said, you know, we hear the lyrics to it. You know, it takes me right back to that time, you know, in, in the house, you know, in, in that real pressure time when I was just dreaming of water, you know? It was... Um, the Plaza in New York City. Tanya Wyman, thank you very much. The night before I got married, unfortunately, the marriage didn't survive. Sorry. <laughs> I hope you found solace in the lyrics after. Right. But um, Anna McIntosh, Irvin Plaza. Oh, yeah, Tosh. Tosh, I forgot. Where is it? Where is his thing? It's outside. I'll go back out in a minute. Right. But uh, what was the other thing? I took, I was, I took some notes. Water, right? But like I said, digging deep, remember, deep sure, aren't we? But like I said, the COVID thing. Oh, yeah, that was the other bit. And we tried to get the Make It Happen, because Make It Happen was the, um, uh, it was the, the thing of the Royal Bank of Scotland, right? And it was, you know, every period you went, every April, Royal Bank of Scotland, Make It Happen, right? And I was, I was with the Bank, Royal Bank of Scotland around that time as well. And, um, Oops, and um, we tried to get into corporate RBS and tried to basically see if they were interested in taking the song. And people went, "Oh, it's really nice, a lovely song, lovely, lovely tune." No, right? And I thought this would be great if we could get make it happen with the RBS TV adverts. We might have a single, then we might do it. <sighs> you know? Julian Davis, I remember a similar incident in Chester with a drunk guy. You, you absolutely tore him apart verbally. Yeah, I remember that as well. <laughs> that was uh, that was the gig where it was a really, really low stage. I seem to remember. Uh, it was, um, but yeah, head close. You know, it happens. It's, um, it was again. That goes back to you know when I was, um, you know, working in in, in small gigs in 1982 and, and 1981. You know, you kind of learn your stagecraft and you learn how to deal with people. And, um, you know, with heckles, it's like sometimes, you know, you go, oh, no, no. And then you just learn, this is my stage. You've paid to see me, right? And you learn different tricks. But the one thing you hate is drunks. You know, when you, know, when you do take out somebody, well, like, you know, big blunderbuss, you know, you know, you know, comebacks, you know. And there's, you know, the guy's just staring at you going, Pugazi. Uh, and you know, and then you try and turn the crowd on them, and then you know, and then uh, sometimes it gets most of the time you can get away with it, but okay, very occasionally, you know, I have had to deal with it. In Bergen in Norway, uh, um, in Bergen in Norway, I had the same thing, and I used to do this yellow card thing where I used to go, you know, okay, this is your warning, right? And it was like, you get the warning. Right, I'm having a word with you, and please stop it. Right, and Bergen, I used to hate playing Bergen. Not this, the city I loved, but we always end up playing this club, and we always end up going on stage at about 10 o'clock at night, and sometimes later, 
And by that time, everybody is pissed. I mean, it's Norway, you know? I mean, they're like, they're like Scots. I mean, they love the beer, right? And because it's all so expensive, they make the absolute most out of it. And I remember in Bergen, this guy going like, blah, 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 all the way through the gig, and I'm going like, blah, 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 stop it, please, you know? Like, just give me a break here. Blah, 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 give me a break. And I said, I'm going to have to yellow card you. And I said, you get one yellow, and then you get the red, right? Two yellows, and you're out, right? Bah, bah, bah. So I gave him one yellow card after his warning and he's gone blah, and he's right at the front of the stage. And again, nobody was doing anything about it. The security weren't doing anything. I'm just going, will you just give me a break, mate? Right? And then I went saying yellow, red, and it was like, and it was bang. And again, I just went off the stage, grabbed him, and I put his arm up the back, up his back, and frog marched him out of the venue, right to the front door, and handed him over to the studio. He said, get this out of the gig, right? And uh, it was remembered. It was, became a very famous night in Bergen. And I remember walking back onto the stage and getting a round of applause for the crowd. But the singer shouldn't be having to do that sort of thing. That's what security are paid for to do. But, but I hate gig disruptions. I mean, you know, you know, it's fair enough. In the middle of, you know, in between songs, you know, you get a couple of guys throwing patter at you and there's a bit of banter. That's fine. And banter's good. It keep, you know, I'm charged up. You know, you get a couple of laughs. You know, it's it's good. You know, but when it when you get guys that are just unruly, totally unruly, you, you know, you have to deal with it. You know, God knows. Yes, I did it in Liverpool as well with a guy. Right. Uh, uh, that's, yeah, listen, I, I think it was a. It might have been on that tour as well. I remember we it was. It was I remember in, the, in Philadelphia. It might have been that tour. But it was completely, this is removed from heckling, right? And I'd gone out with some some friends that were on, that were kind of on the, the website, on the, the fan forum. And, you know, we I said, yeah, we'll go out for a beer. So I met him up, went for a beer. And then I realised I'd lost my laminate. Right? <laughs> I'd left my tour laminate, right? Backstage at the gig. And I'm going, oh, fucking on. And I went, oh, I'll be all right. So... I went up to the, went up to the, the, the Philadelphia, the gig, to get into it. You had to go in through the front. So you had to go in through the front door and go through the crowd to get backstage. It was a brilliant venue. I'd love to play there again. I've loved that, that hall. And anyway, I go up to the door. The same thing. It's two huge bouncers, massive man-mountain bouncers. Right? And they're going, you got you, you, where's your laminate, man? And I said, I don't have a laminate. It's backstage. No, man, we can't let you in, man. And, that, and he, my mates are going, like, he's a singer, he's a, he's a singer. <laughs> and they're going, he's a singer, he's a singer. I'm going, I'm a singer. No, man, you don't have your laminate, you can't come in. You got any identification on you? <laughs> yeah. And I got my wall out. And I had an American Express card, right, with Derek W. Dick Fish written on it, right? And I went, American Express? And the guy went, that's okay, man. <laughs> American Express got me into the gig rather than rather than the tour laminate. But I used to have I used to have credit cards because back in the day when I was you mind when I was doing a lot of flying around, it was like a lot of the times they would before you needed kind of identification to get on planes when it was you know security was non non existent. You know all they wanted to see was when you went up and got your ticket. You know because you couldn't do it online and shit. It was always like you went up and got your ticket. And, uh, and what used to happen was that the EMI would sometimes, you know, book me on flights and they'd book me, they'd have fish written down on it, right? 
And the only kind of, when I went up, I had no identification saying that you couldn't get an album out. I did try that once. It's, it's me on the album. It's Fish. I'm on, it's me. That's me on the, Intel, it's, that's me, right? <laughs> you go to the website, you'll find photographs, you know, like, oh, but you could have made that up, right? So yeah, so I got credit cards and I had credit cards with Derek W. Dick Fish on them. And that used to be able to get me my tickets sometimes for aircraft, you know? No. Uh, Norman Warburton, sadly there was a few drunks, yes, 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 in Edinburgh, yeah, you don't have to use capital letters. Uh, Sandra Cooper, hello. <laughs> Deborah Cassidy, digging deep, but it sounds like you might do it like Bowie's, yeah. It, it, was, it could have been great, but we just, you know, <clears throat> we just, it just misfired. I mean, like I said, I mean, I was horrendously indebted at that time, and it was, it was an absolute mess, and it was... My my state of mind was in that plague of ghosts kind of in that plague of ghosts vibe. You know? Michael Thompson fish leads way back. Two drunk guys front and center. You cracked and said, <laughs> "I'm the singer." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, the vigil. Tour, I was never kind of the vigil tour. Right when, when I started doing vigil and then going out into the crowd, I used to love doing that. But I, I, mean, I used to do that back in Marillion when I used to take the radio mic up to the balconies like the Sheffield story I told you last week. And I used to like it. I like breaking down the fourth wall. You know, what they call the fourth wall. is the fourth wall is what exists between um, the audience and the crowd. You know, that is the fourth wall. And it's the magic invisible wall. And I like to walk through that wall. You know, I, I like it to go into contact and break it. And you just, you just create the oneness. You know, when people, you know, are all standing there and just to walk through it. And it relaxes people. It's really strange. People feel... Relaxed, you know. Stephen Brillinghoff, an electric violin and stage for Plague Ghost would suit the song perfectly. Yeah, good idea. But you know, I'd be you know um <laughs> Raymond Van Dyke concerts must be without audience. Yeah, it's a really good idea. Concerts without audience. The only problem is how do the musicians get paid? <laughs> Live streaming. Uh, uh. Some people coming back here with memories of gigs where I did things, and I don't want to get. Yeah, Stefan Zorn, you need to come back to Germany. Yeah, I need to come back to Germany. My my wife would love to go back to Germany and, and see her folks. She's not seen her, her her parents and and for over a year. She's not seen her daughters for for you know a long period of months. But I mean, it's it's too dangerous. It's like, you know, as I said before, I go back to the reality of where we are. You know, the, like I said, my daughter is sitting outside and. You know, we keep our distance and, you know, we have to watch because my mother's through there. And, you know, I've got to watch as well. I mean, you know, I want to go up and just, you know, give my daughter a big hug. And, uh, but, you know, you just have to throw that, the wall up. And like I said, you know, we're having, you know, my mum through there. It's like, and her being 87, I mean, you know, she's a statistic. You know, if anything happens and if she caught anything, she would end up being a statistic. And it's sad to say, but it's goddamn true. And I'm not that great. I mean, like I said, I mean, I had um, I had sepsis twice, so my immune system's kind of depleted. My lungs ain't what they used to be. And uh, so, you know, I'm in a high-risk category. So, you know, we all kind of, you know, you know, keep that going and all the rest of it. But, uh, yeah. Lynn Mokinson, Brighton Gig on Feast Tour, a drunken assassin got disruptive before the Highwood Suite. We formed a shield wall of bodies and he got nowhere near the front. Security took him out. Now that's what I love, you know. 
being protected by fans. Because, you know, at the end of the day, these guys are not just screwing my gig over, you know, like in the Irvin Plaza gig, you know, they were screwing the gig over for everybody else. And people had paid money to see it. They didn't pay money to hear some guy shout out, Fugazi, yeah, at the front, you know? And that's why I hate it. I don't mind banner, but, you know, when it just becomes, you know, especially shouting out Marillion songs. I mean, Grendel, right, you know, that, that's banter, you know, it, you know, and everybody knows that, you know, and uh, and you can always have a bit of a laugh with it, but you know, but when people start shouting "Garden Party," you know, it's as if I'm, I'm going to go, you know what, guys, we never played that for years. Let's just play it now. Everybody remember it. Oh, I did sheep No, it's you know, it becomes. Why are you doing it? No. Oh. Talk shows in primetime TV, John Waters. Talk shoes, yeah. Neil Montgomery, I could see fish as a wrestler. The fish. <laughs> With one of the Mexican masks on. The fish. Oh, my God. No. I, I, no, no wrestling. I tell you who's a wrestler. It's John Wesley. John Wesley, John Wesley was actually, like, you know, I, I think he was, um, it was a high school and above. And he was a serious wrestler. He, John has got a really slight body, right? <laughs> Wes, if you're watching, I'm it. And, um, and Wes was really ticklish, right? And, but he's a really wiry guy. I mean, he's slight, but he's just all muscle, right? And on the, the top deck of the bus, right? John, every night, used to go upstairs and he'd brush his teeth at the, the front and he didn't like to have this, the, the muck in his mouth, right? So he'd brush his teeth at the front of the bus. So he had to walk down through all the bunks to go down to the bathroom to spit out his, his, his toothpaste, right? And we used to try and get, I used to try and get him every night. Right? I used to try and get him every night and I was going to try and tickle him so that he'd swallow the toothpaste. Not a chance in hell, right? He was, he was like, he, I mean, he, and one night when we, when we were working here, um, I think it was on the Fellini Days album, right? He fucked me over, right? And we were in and I had a few drinks and did it and we were mucking about and stuff like that. And we were wrestling and the thing, and he threw me, right? He made this guy, he's about up to about there on me, and he threw me, it was brilliant. And he threw me right into the goddamn fireplace, right? And I landed on my shoulder. And to this day, this this little bump here, right? I can't remember what they call it, but that was where the bursa or whatever it's called, right? That little pop-out bursa, that's, that's the Wes bump, right? Because that's where I went up. I ended up in hospital and I, thought, I actually thought I'd broken my shoulder. But he was a great wrestler, right? right? Really amazing guy, right? Benny Hayden, hello from Sekach, Germany. Jeff Wells, saw you in Oakland, separate from the band before the show, getting out of a car wearing the torch suit. Is <laughs> that right? <laughs> Angela Hatwell, you walked through the audience at Wembley in 87 when Prince Edward was there, yeah. It was fun, because with the vigil thing, people don't expect you to do that, because, you know, the music starts, right? And everybody's looking at the, at the stage and expecting the singer to come on, the band's on. And then you walk past them from behind them. And it was like, you know, and singing it. And it was great. It was just so unexpected, you know. And I was really lucky, you know. I mean, I'd, more often than not, you know, you'd have, I'd have security guys that were, that were there that were just around me, just in case. But mainly just to help me through. Because there would be occasionally times when people rush up and like, you know, and um, they, they were like, ah, and then you can't get to the stage. But I always had to plan, because otherwise, I always had to plan my route, 
you know, before soundcheck, I'd always planned my route where I was going to, st how I was going to get into the foyer or whatever, how I was going to come through the crowd, what what direction. And there was a couple of times when the door was locked, but it was definitely Spinal Tap. Hello, Philadelphia. <laughs> and, you know, back then, I mean, I, I had the ability to climb over barriers. Not now. No, no, I couldn't do that. I mean, if I was faced with a barrier, it'd be like, you know, like, yeah, I'm just going to be doing the gig from the crowd now. Yeah. Yeah. Royal Boiving, don't smoke, wink. Yeah, fair enough. Christina Martin, are you coming to Sweden? Yeah, of course I'm coming to Sweden, but tell me when and I'll be there. I don't know what's happening. You know, I mean, like I said, I mean, I was talking to somebody the other day and I know what, there's somebody, a good friend of mine, He's, he's he's been he booked a load of arenas for the the shows that he was putting on, and he booked booked them into, into twenty one, and he's now moved them to twenty two, right, two thousand and twenty two, and it's you know that's that's kind of the concern, you know, but anyway. Uh, Adrian Mason, what's your thoughts on mobile phones at gigs? Mobile phones at gigs. You know, back in the eighties, you know, when you were when we were kind of worried about bootlegs and stuff, you know, it was it was guys were like walk Sonny Walkman or whatever. You know, you occasionally get these kind of semi-professional guys, and I've seen that in Paris when we, we played in in Paris. Um, there was uh, you know you get people that go up and they'd buy tickets and they'd, they'd have microphones, stereo microphones either side, you know, like you know, on the balcony and you could see them, and. Um, you know, and the cameras and stuff. But I mean, it was back then, it was it was tapes. I mean, I've even heard stories about people going in with reel-to-reel -reel recorders into the gigs and setting up microphones. And, um, but since the tech changed, and since the tech became smaller and the tech became more clever, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard. You know, I don't want to, you know, with mobile phones, it's, um, you know, I don't want to ban mobile phones. I mean, this whole idea of, like, you know, you're handing your mobile phone before, you know, you, you, they put in a little security bag and give you a number. I don't really want to get into that. And people queuing and stuff, waiting for their phones after gigs and queuing and waiting to get into the gig to pass the phones over to, like, the relevant parent. I don't want to do that. I, I, you need to trust people. And, as, you know, I, I hate... I mean, we go into this. I mean... The, the guys that are filming on mobile phones and, you know, when you see them, you see these clips on YouTube and it's people's heads and it's a horribly distorted sound and it's not set for the lights and everything, you know, it's like, why bother doing that? You're at a gig. Just enjoy the experience. You don't have to go like, you know, you know, this is where I'm at, you know. So I mean, it's just the same with flashes, I hate. But I mean, we're going in, we're going down another, a completely different road there. I'll leave that to another time. iPhones and photographs at gigs, you know. Eric Kitzmer, saw you in a club in New Jersey in America, Sunsets and Emperor Tour. You passed around a jug of wine. My best friend was and is a, a germaphobe. I gestured to you to pass the hug to him. You saw me and you did. I got a jolly good laugh. And he and he passed the jug to me as if it were on fire after Big Ledge. I was so happy. He come to America, one of the best going. Yeah, I, you know, America, I mean, you know, don't write. I want to come over. It doesn't make sense, right? The financially, it doesn't make sense, and et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, when I do the farewell tour, I would like to do something where I go to Philadelphia or I go to Chicago or I do New York, whatever, and do exactly what I plan to do in Europe, right? Which is to do two nights in the one venue. And that, we might be able to make it work, you know? But that's further down the line. I've still got to get through the rescheduled shows next year, 
Chico Naturni, Magic Night in Augusta Rurica. I was there with the company Italy. Yeah. Good evening to the company Italy. Speaking of Glendale, it will be on the... Glendale. <laughs> John Germanotta. Speaking of Glendale. Glendale. Will it be on the, the Farewell to Fish? No. Nah, I'm not playing. If you want to hear Grendel, right, you can... It's on the Leamington Spa Live album, the, the, the fan club convention album. It was a, it was lovely to play. You know, as I say, Grendel became a, a bit of a rod for our backs when I was in Marillion. Everybody wanted it. And, it, you know, to play, you know, nowadays... To, to, on all, I mean, let's be honest, right? Do I really want to take, you know, a, a song from... A B-side from 1982, right? right and put... 20 minutes of that in a set in, of today, no, right? It's, it's a dated song, I love it. On, at Leamington, we played it on two nights. You know, I love when we rehearsed it and Frank Usher was playing and things. It was fantastic. It had a great vibe. But to take it out on a tour, it's 20 minutes of a 1982 B-side. And I don't want to do that, you know, if I was going to tour. It would bore me to tears after about a week, you know? No. Ian McCauley, sure the Ghost Remix will happen and that'll be amazing, look forward to it. It won't be a, a remix, because I can't remix it, because Rain Gods of Zippos falls in with Fellini Days and that it was recorded on media. And I know some people have said, well, we can get it, we, can, we, can, we know people that can do it. I found guys in London who are experts at extracting media from broken kind of formats and they couldn't do it, right? And they had all the tools at their disposal and they could not open up the, the, the mechanism, files and everything. It's, they were fucked, you know? So if I do redo Plague of Ghosts, it would have to be a complete re-record. And as I said, when it goes into the Farewell Tour, that Plague will definitely be in there because I would rather play Plague far more than I would want to play Grendel in that set, you know? And I think Plague could be really exciting, you know? Timo Hutakangas, hello. Oh. Mick Bailey, Mick here from the Bailey Brothers. Have you got any advice for new bands starting up with all this virus record company not taking any chances these days? I'm oh, sorry, mate. There's so many people say, you know, what do I do? How do I get into the music business? And blah, blah, blah. I don't know. This is my little hole here. This is my little part. You know, and I don't really, you know, when I interact with the music business, it is at a distance. I mean, James Cassidy, thank you, James, like, has helped me, guide me through the whole digital world and the whole banner advertising and placements and, you know, da-da-da, Facebook ads. That, you know, it's, it's an alien world to me, right? It's an alien world. And, um, and you know, I, I don't know, you know, I... I don't like hearing other people's demos because I have my own particular taste and what I say about a song or my opinion on a song doesn't really matter, you know? And I don't want to hear it. I, I, I can't listen to, to stuff when I'm, when, when I'm writing because it's like, it's too dangerous. There was a, a great Elton John, there was similar an Elton John story where he, you know, he was, he got, had a lawsuit come at him and it was a, uh, it was some guy who said I'd given you, I was gave you a demo like two years ago, and this song sounds like my demo, and there was a court case on it, and it was like, oh, 
it was just somebody chancing, I think, you know. But, but yes, I, I, I don't want to hear people's demos. It's, it's not, you know, I don't want to be disrespectful, you know, and I'd rather just say no, you know, that, that's it. I, I don't want to hear it because I, I don't know what to advise. And I get asked by lots of people, you know, I'm a singer, how do I go about it? I don't know. I don't know these days. It's like because it's a completely different game. This whole digital thing, this entire way of bands developing and all this, I've got no idea. I was really lucky. In the, in the early 80s, we signed with a brilliant record company called EMI and they had the machinery that could bring us into things. And But that took a long time. And that was in the days when you put demos and you could go out and work live and you got signed, but it's so difficult to make money from recorded music these days. You know, I mean, somebody said to me, you know, a couple of years back, it's like, you know, the most important thing that you can get, you know, as, as a young band is an agent, a gig agent, you know? You need to get somebody that can get you gigs. But I mean, gigs, gigging is becoming more expensive and, you know, it's more awkward. And, you know, that's why this is support band thing. And I'm lucky I've got, with Doris Brendel and her band, we've got like, it's, it works great. It's like Doris has got a fantastic band, great people, right? Her music works well as a support thing with us, my cloud, like what Doris does. And Doris has become basically my backing vocalist and she's a brilliant singer. She's done fantastic work on the, the, the Velchman's album. And it's, um, yeah. Stephen Barney, Fish, would you be kind enough to pull a few of the records behind you at random? At random, it's 25 to seven. I'll do that another week, right? Alan Johnson, The Box in Glasgow, you singing Sugar Mice Standard on the Bar. Yeah, that was a... We played this gig called The Box, right, in Glasgow. It was a tiny little gig. And on the Fishheads Club tour, because it was only me, Frank and Foz, right, you know, it was really easy. You know, the costs of, of taking that unit out was, was so small that we could, we could afford to play a lot of smaller venues and make it work. And the guys could get paid... And we're playing Glasgow, we could drive home after the gig, etc. And I remember doing the box. And I'll, Sugar Mice is just one of the, the acoustic versions of Sugar Mice. Um, you know, when you could, if you were close enough, you know, you could actually go and, and sit on the bar or stand on the bar and sing to the crowd from the bar. It was, ju it was just brilliant. It was absolutely perfect, you know. And we had some great nights. My IP address is exposed. Oh, I'm not... Big man Grendel was and is a masterpiece. Thank you. Uh, hey Fish, do you still keep in touch with Stephen Wilson and have you heard his latest stuff, Phil from Sunny Southport? No, I've not. I've not heard Stephen's new album and we don't keep in touch. If he's playing up in Edinburgh, when, when he was up uh, the last time, I went out with him and Nick Beggs and we had a couple of beers together and it's, it's great to catch up. I enjoy his company. He's a nice guy and we have good times. And like I said, you know, every time we meet, we talk about the shit and dog story in the control room. <laughs> I remember when this happened, yeah. Uh. Oh, we're all off in the Grendel thing. Let's move on. Uh. Steve Crossland, favourite Scottish band, Strange Ways. I remember Strange Ways. I, I think they were a Manchester band. And I played them when I was working on, when I, did, when I first started doing DJing. It was, uh, I did, um, I used to play some of their music because I think they were on EMI at the time. Dario Vitale, hello from Montreal, Canada. What are your most fond memories of stories of Montreal and Canada? It was great. 
the one one I always remember when we went back to the Spectrum and uh, walked on stage at the Spectrum and we took uh, about a 10 minutes standing ovation before we even played a note. And I loved that gig. And I heard, I heard a while ago that it had gone, but it was just a, it was a beautiful venue. And that would have been a venue that I would have loved to have played, uh, you know, on the, the, on the farewell tour. But I mean, taking that, that standing ovation the suspension for 10 minutes was just unbelievable. Um, Chris Harris at a distance, best way, preferable for more, but da 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 Oh, glory, glory, the hype is, yeah, yeah. My ex mother will tomorrow. I'm with my season ticket. I can watch it live. I watched the game on, on Sunday on uh, Sky. And uh, 1 0 against Dundee. Top of the League of Rangers, doing great. Go away. Ah, fuck. Go away. Phil Rankin, how about a five-minute fish medley to include a few lines from all those songs that everyone always shouts for? I like medleys. We've done some good ones. And I think, again, there'll be, there'll be an opportunity to put something really clever together. There's some medleys, you know, that I'll talk about another time that, that, that worked really well. But, yeah, you know, but it's a long way away, you know. Joachim Raberg, I skipped military service to see you in Stockholm and Gothenburg in 1984 and almost got caught. Good man. Uh, Nigel Camilleri, hello. Yeah, how you doing, Nigel? Is it safe? Is it safe? Nigel's a dentist in Malta. How's lockdown? I see you've now been thrown to the back of the queue again. It's like, you know, there's people going to France and things like, you know, they're, they're trying to get back from France and stuff. It's like... I wouldn't go anywhere at the moment. Yeah, I wouldn't even think about getting on a plane and going anywhere, right? In case you got trapped and then having to do this and come back and do two weeks. And, you know, as I said before, I've got an 87-year-old mother through there and Simona would love to fly back to Karlsruhe to go and see her parents, but she won't because, you know, the danger of picking something up and we just got to be safe, you know? Bob Falk, Doris Brendel is a brilliant singer performer. I totally agree. Doris, are you watching? Hello, darling. Oh. Uh, Andrew Evans, I'll, I'll walk away for that one. Oh. Gordon Brown, King Tuts, when you could do high kicks. Yeah, yeah, when I used to do high kicks. If I tried a high kick now, my leg would probably detach itself from my body or at least break at the knee. Right. Christian Palick, good evening, Derek. Hello, red wine. Yeah, I like red wine. It's like I said, oh, my, I've not got air Darn him. Yeah. It's 22. Oh, it's Simona time. Darling. Yeah. What's for dinner tonight? Dinner tonight. Hello. <laughs> um, we're going to have crayfish linguine because Tara loves it very much. And tomato mozzarella and olives. Are the tomatoes from our own greenhouse? Yes. Yes. Do you know what kind they are? I put all these it's labels in. I put the labels in the I tomatoes, <laughs> right? I put all these labels in the tomatoes because I said, like, let's find out what, the, what ones they are. So when you bring them in, so we know which ones. So they're really nice. So we'll grow them next year. And so what I keep is bringing piles of tomatoes in. I go, which is what? Because I got it. It was from the left-hand side. <laughs> because Namen sind Schall und Rauch. 
it doesn't change the taste if you know what they're called. Yeah, it's true, but it's nice to know which ones are nice ones. Of course, if we've yeah. got nice ones. But, but tonight it looks like, we're, we're, because Sarah's here, we can have a socially distanced you know, dinner outside at the table and we can get the little fire on, which means I've, I've got to say, hello, Sandy Fearful. Hello, I know you're, Sandy, I know your chimneria, chimneria will be glowing tonight and the beers will be out. So, hello, Sandy, how you doing? Yeah. Wait a minute, I've got to get something. Oh, I'll tell you what. Why don't I play you a song? I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna work a vinyl. Now I've been, <laughs> forgive me, okay? I've got one of those styluses that, you know, when you put it down, it goes like that, you know, it's supposed to go like that, and it goes like that, right? So I'm gonna, up to now, I've, I've, I've been playing the opening tracks of the vinyl to avoid the embarrassment of a stylus jumping over the rest of the record and everybody going, right? So I'm going to, and I thought today, because it was like it's a, a, a beautifully sunny day, I thought that this song, which was written on a, a very sunny day when I was out in the, I was sitting in the, the, the kitchen one morning, and uh, the opening line, Doobie and Peruvian Coffee, that's all I'm going to say. But it's, uh, this is this song, we, we wrote, Foz and I, Foz Robin and I put this one together, and uh like I said, I had the lyric kind of beforehand and I knew it was going to be a kind of little jaunty thing. And um, when, I, when, I, when I did it, I basically put the whole, the whole lyric together and came into Foz. And Foz and I are very good at working on this kind of stuff. And it was round, round about the same time as, we, as the little man put down. It was recorded. It was recorded um, back in, in 18. And... Uh, Dave Stewart had done the drums in it. And when we played it live, when it became the Trondheim Waltz, right? I think I've told you already about the Trondheim Waltz, but for those who don't know, it had a feel like the company, you know? It had that kind of genre. I mean, it's a song about somebody basically getting told that he's got cancer. That's, I mean, that is, that is what it's about, right? It wasn't from personal experience, you know, but it was somebody, or somebody getting bad news, right? And it's that, that kind of like, you know, I won't let you bring me down, you know, not today, right? And it was kind of, I, I just took that approach on it when I put the lyric together in, in, in the kitchen and I took it to Foz and we recorded it. But what David done in the drums was a bit straight and then when we took it out on the road, it kind of loosened up a bit and everything kind of felt a bit right and it was, it was a, a tiny little shift within the, the, within the rhythm part. You know, just to give it a little bit more swing and just to loosen up. And it changed the song completely. So when Craig Blundell came up to um, to, to play the drums on the, the, the second big recording sessions, Craig went in and just and just nailed it, you know. And um, so the, the, the version in 18, although the, the, a lot of the basic recordings are right, and, and the vocals changed. I had to redo the vocals on it because with Craig just changing it and my experience of singing it, you know, I just found a, a little bit of swing in the song. And once Craig changed the vibe and the vocals went on, this song went from being, you know, what would have been, I wouldn't say a B-side, but it wasn't my favourite track. And I couldn't, in 18, I couldn't see where it was going to fit on the album. And I didn't hear it on the album, really. You know, it was, all, it was going to be a bonus track bef before we kind of went for the, the, the double album scenario. And... Uh, and it just changed, and I, I really, really like it now. And um, it's just got such a wonderful vibe. And again, 
you know, Callum's touching it was just beautiful. Callum just placing all the different instruments in the, in the right way. But it became the Trondine Waltz because when we took it on, out on tour, when we were playing the, the, the parley material on, with, with, with the clutching, and we went to Trondheim and I felt it had a kind of vibe like the company. So uh, what I wanted to do was, um, I wanted to find some kind of audience interaction, you know, and in the same way as a lot of you know that when I, we played the company live, you know, so that, you know, we used to do the, 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 the ballerina bit, you know. So I thought, let's, it's had a waltz in it. So I was in Trondheim, and I just said before the song, like, da-da-da, I want everybody to waltz, right? And um, we said, just turn round to the person standing immediately next to you and just grab them, right, and just dance with them. Remember doing that? Remember dancing with strangers? <laughs> when you, <laughs> we can't even touch hands now, you know. But it was back then, it was a waltz. And we, we were playing Trondheim, and they were brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I said, just do the waltz. I said, I'll give you a sign. And I said, just waltz. And we played the sea song, got into the section, and we said, the waltz. And they started, and everybody in this hall started to waltz. And it was just outstanding to be on stage and watch all these people just waltzing with complete strangers, like, on, you know, just an immediate thing, you know, just completely, like, you know, spontaneous kind of waltzing. And that is why the sea song is called Sea Song in brackets, the Trondheim Waltz. So I'm going to play it for you now. And please forgive me, right? Forgive me if this needle jumps or if I screw up here, right? I'm doing my best. These are big paws, right? And they're not meant for little delicate needles. So bear with me. Ow. <sighs> Change the thing there. Right. Up and running. Oh God. The end of Garden Remembrance on the uncut with a cord good in the distance. The sea song, the Let you bring me down 
to do this a little bit off now hope you enjoyed that one and this is um, I got it wrong the last time this is uh, our 20th um, so um, this little bottle of Mionetto Prosecco I didn't used to like I, I was never a big champagne drinker I was, I was too many bloody bubbles and um, you know when people was always every time you went to like celebrations and things you know, for like the gold album celebration with the record company or whatever, right? It was just like, it used to drive me, you know, champagne. I go, oh, I'll have a Jack Daniels, can I? But when, a couple of years ago, actually when we got married, when Simone and I got married down in um, Aberlady, uh, we had, we, we, we could afford to get loads of champagne, basically. So we got Prosecco, somebody said some really good Proseccos. And I got quite into it. And, uh, this is really nice. 
this is and I'm, this is a little plug. Me and Eto. This is my my daughter's like doing some work for them. So she I didn't get this free by the way. We bought this then at the supermarket. There we got this from Tesco's, right? So I got this is me and Eto, and this is it. So what I want to do is because we're um, we're kind of at that point now. Um, it's, it's that time of the week. I'm sorry it was a little bit at the beginning of the the at the beginning of the broadcast. There was I was really out of tune, you know. And I was kind of thrown. There was a lot of things that have been happening in the, in the last week, you know, bits and pieces of stuff. I really don't want to go into. But it's been causing a lot of stress. And, you know, when I came to the programme tonight, it was kind of just a little bit, I was off kilter. And I didn't really get into the groove until, you know, when I got it. So it was the 20th. And it's a big one. And we're here. 20 shows. 20 running shows. And they're carrying on. I've still got to sort out the T-shirt. Oh, shit. I've got to do that as well. Wait a minute. I've still got to sort out the t-shirts. The cartoonist I've got to get back in touch with. The cartoonist is scribbling away like mad. Put it across it. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big guy. I don't wear my dungarees today because uh, my dungarees were, um, they're in the wash, right? But I promise I nearly missed this. I said, Tosh Macintosh, good evening. Hello. And uh, I just want to say, it's his baby's birthday, right? So, Abby, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, happy Macintosh, happy birthday to you. 17 years old, God, I remember that. So, um, yeah, so, happy birthday. A glass of Prosecco to us all. Thank you for being out there. Thanks for continuing to watch this Fish on Friday debacle. And uh, I will be back again for next Friday and the Friday after until this whole thing comes. In fact, probably till you know, I go back on the road. I'll probably end up duplicating some things because it's like, you know, you can realise, you know, I'm an old man and I forget and I often repeat myself. So forgive me if I do repeat some stories and things of the future. Um, by the way, these are not... Somebody was asking on the fish, official group page and they said, like, they're, you're selling COVID masks and blah, blah, blah. These are not, like, proper protection. We're not selling COVID masks. We're selling buffs, you know. These are not protective masks. If you want to use this as a mask, in all honesty, it's like you put a bit of handkerchief or something behind because seemingly it's, like, two levels of, of material. That's how it works. So these are buffs. There's a new set of buffs, there's blue ones, blue and white ones we've got in the next couple of weeks because the green and white ones are just about sold out. Um, but they're not COVID masks, they're buffs. And if you want to use them on mask, use a handkerchief or something, use another piece of material behind it. And then it kind of works. I don't know, I'm not a chemist, I'm not a scientist, you know. But what I am seeing is if you do go out, you know, just take care, you know. Like I said, you... France is, you know, getting shut down. They're on about people from the Netherlands are able to come to Britain now. You know, and, and you know, we, we were down in Harrington the other day and it was just, everybody's getting back in and thinking that it's kind of normal again, you know? And it's not, right? It's not. And it's, you know, there was, I got told just the other day, there's a, about a singer in a band. They were supposed to be going to do a big four session. You wouldn't, you don't know this band, but I mean, um, he caught... He, he tested positive after catching COVID in a rehearsal room somewhere out the West Coast. And uh, 
It's, um, it's that easy. And I can't take the risk, which is why, I mean, as I said, if Roger Waters had rejoined Floyd and was playing Addington Corn Exchange tomorrow night, I wouldn't be there, right? And um, so all I'm asking you is, like, unless we all take care, unless we all start addressing this properly, there will be no gigs because they will not allow public gatherings until that R rate is right down and they've got the contact tracing thing sorted out and all the rest of it. So just I'm asking you, do your bit, right? You're not an asshole if you wear a mask, you know? It's really easy. You're protecting other people. And anything you can do to, like, you know, basically help take those rates down, get the thing under control, you know, because we're never going to eradicate it. They talk about vaccines and all the rest of it, but what we have to do, everybody's saying, well, why can't we go to bars and blah, blah, blah. You can once you get that rate all the way down, right? So wear masks, wash your hands, and keep your social distance. As I said, my daughter's out there, we will be having lunch outside, you know, three meters away from each other, right? I wanna, I wanna hold my daughter, I have never given her a hug, right? Since the beginning of March, right? And it's, it's crazy, you know, we're father and daughter, and I know all you guys have got the same thing going on in, in, in your places where there's family that come in, just maintain it because Taking these little bits of, uh, taking the time now and take and, and being more safe now helps get you to and the next place faster, right? But I'm here, we're here, all alive, and I raise a glass to you, a wee glass of Mignetto Prosecco to you, Slange Navarre. Thanks for being out there, and I really hope you enjoyed it tonight. Um, until the next time, um, just take care and stay alive, okay? Right. Watch after. Have a fine weekend. Either get a canoe, a uh, wetsuit, uh, or sun cream, or sunblock, or whatever. Just delete what's appropriate, because nobody knows what's going to be happening the next day. Okay, bye.